Hello, my name is Julia Streets and welcome to Diversity Podcast, talking about diversity and inclusion in financial services. On the podcast, we seek to shine a light on positive progress, call out areas requiring further focus and offer lots of ideas to help drive change. And today I'm joined by Tracy Groves and Sylvia Carrasco. Tracy Groves is the founder and director of her advisory business, Intelligent Ethics, passionate about helping boards and leaders think differently about responsible leadership, diversity, inclusive culture and ethical behaviours as drivers of a high-performing business. She is a leading voice in the analysis and the impact of artificial intelligence or AI on business ethics and works with organisations to help them better understand and prepare for the consequences and impact of AI on leadership and accountability, decision-making, integrity and judgment. Tracy, welcome to the show. Hello. Sylvia Carrasco heads the board of directors of the fintech company Goldex, focused on reinventing how gold is traded. She has enjoyed an 18-year career in investment banking, managed teams, negotiated global commercial deals, and been responsible for delivering distribution strategies at Credit Suisse and Man Financial. In 2008, she successfully founded the first FCA-regulated firm to provide execution trading services to global institutions. Sylvia, welcome to the show. Hello. So at the beginning of the show, we invite each of our guests to take a moment to talk about the things that they're most focused upon. Tracy, what are you working on at the moment? The key things that I'm focusing are two-pronged in effect. One is around the role of leadership in taking organisations to a place where they've never been before. So that, what I mean by that is being able to exceed expectations in terms of performance, but by doing that using integrity and inclusion as core drivers of that performance. And the second prong of what I'm absolutely passionate about is, is thinking about how technology and emerging intelligent systems are going to enrich all of our lives for the good. And this comes with an only if we are able to hardwire ethical principles and integrity at their very core. So my work is about combining those two elements and thinking about what can I do to help shape influence, design and monitor how leaders and organisations are going to open up possibilities and avenues that we've never seen in terms of of human performance as well as organisational performance. Fabulous. And there's a lot in there that we'll certainly unpick as we we go through the show. Thank you very much indeed. Um, Sylvia, let me turn to you. What what are you focused on at the moment? Thank you very much for having me here today. So basically, I dedicate my time to uh, two things, mainly professionally speaking. Uh, the first one is obviously uh, running Goldex, um, which is the first ethical gold uh, provider um, that has ever been launched in the in the in the world. So uh, that has taken a lot of time and a lot of dedication uh, because we had to change the business model from scratch. Um, the second thing that I'm very passionate about is um, to help uh, women. Um, you know, set up their own businesses. I'm a mentor at the uh, London Business School. Uh, I mentor some some very intelligent uh, ladies who uh, who need some help to uh, to keep you know uh, moving forward and in in their ideas of setting up their businesses. Um, I do quite a lot of promotions, for example, with the UK government, with the Department of International Trade, uh, that are now been uh, very vocal about helping uh, female founders uh, in the fintech uh, space. So that's pretty much how I'm dividing my professional uh, life. One of them, you can call it more a philanthropic uh, uh, attitude, uh, 
and the other one is obviously to to run the business successfully. Mm-hmm. Well, they, well they, and there's clearly some, some very interesting parallels. I mean, the, the word ethics comes up quite a lot in, in both of what, what you were talking about. Tracy, you advise organisations at the very, very highest level about how to drive performance and the contribution that diversity and inclusion uh, can make. To what degree do you see that that awareness has shifted over time? It's a great question, Julia, and I would say awareness has shifted. However, it's the use of the word awareness that really, um, what I would say, ignites my passion for wanting to make a difference because awareness is not enough. So there's a huge amount of talking, and I do not doubt any of the sincerity and the intent of initiatives and policies around returners to work schemes, around sponsorships, around um, policies such as shared parental leave. I'm seeing things happening now such as um, recruitment strategies with uh, no male shortlists for candidates and even no male panels on conferences and, and debates taking place. Big tick from me, brilliant. However, the challenge comes on how do we then convert that into action? And although that is taking place in terms of these initiatives being written down, is there a belief, an inherent sense of we're doing this because not only is it the right thing to do, but also it drives better outcomes from a business perspective. And that's the bit I feel that, yes, the awareness has gone up, but there still needs to be a greater level of integrity in carrying and executing those initiatives and policies. Where do the initiatives lie? Is it with... Heads of DNI, is it with the businesses themselves? Where do you think the change, the accelerating change, will come from? It has to come from the very top, absolutely. And there needs to be support, there needs to be endorsement, and there needs to be a belief at the top that this is the right thing to do. However, I genuinely believe it's down to every single one of us, at whatever level of the organisation, to hold each other to account as and when these initiatives are rolled out and necessarily not executed in the way that they should be. So if we are seeing inappropriate behaviour, if we are seeing behaviour which is exclusive and is discrimination in terms of the way it's not including every single one of us, then what are we doing to raise our concerns? And in an area whereby I feel psychologically safe to be able to escalate issues and make those concerns heard. So it's not about it's all down to the leadership and it's their fault. Um, It's actually the leadership is defining what the standards of behaviour are. It's down to every single one of us to be able to live up to that and then to demonstrate at all levels what it means to do that right thing. And, and that, that takes a degree of uh, courage, actually, throughout an organisation, because what we, what we talk about a lot at the, on the, the podcast is that uh, there are certain entrenched behaviours that have always been there over time. So middle management behaviours. But the millennials, for example, will not hesitate to call out bad behaviour uh, and because for them it's just, it's, it's, it's just part of the way that they work because they work a much higher, sort of faster pace of feedback loops, if you like. Um, I, I, are you seeing that there is a wave of change or are there still sticky points about people going, yes, we understand the intention and, and how can we help people hold businesses to account? I think the Me Too movement has genuinely opened doors and given people more permission to be able to speak up now. So you talk about courage and bravery to voice these concerns. I think now women are feeling empowered and feeling more comfortable. It doesn't necessarily alleviate the fear, but I think the um, solidarity and collaboration that comes from being part of a collective that is outlining exactly what is appropriate, what is inappropriate, is making a big difference. Um, I'll give you a real-life example 
example, actually, of a, of a client that I'm working with, whereby they were um, using uh, all levels of, of, of management to be able to deliver messages around inappropriate behaviour. Um, and they were using this at levels of management they'd never done before. It normally just used to come from the top, and then that would be cascaded down via using loads of communication channels. Now they said, no, actually, this has got to come personally from middle and junior managers. As a consequence of doing that, the number of whistleblowing calls and allegations of inappropriate behaviour went up significantly. Um, and as a result, they did some investigation to understand, well, that could be a good thing, necessarily not a bad thing, So, but why? what's driving this increased confidence um, and, and uh, ability to make those concerns heard? And what they found as a, as a result of their investigations was actually the number of individuals who's looking at their manager and saying, how dare you? How dare you sit there and tell me about what this is in terms of our corporate values or what we stand for or our purpose, when I know on a day-to-day -day basis you do not enact those in terms of the behaviours, in terms of your decision-making. So as a consequence of that, it actually inspired people to be able to say, actually, this is not the top leadership that we need to be held to account here, it's everyone else, and that includes people in my team, in my office, in my local geographical function area. So... I, I genuinely think that it's something that we need to hold to collective accountability, but also I think to ensure that we reward those individuals who take that step forward because we, we can all benefit from it. And we, and we see so many organisations, you know, coming out with those kind of classic three to five corporate statements that they'll put all over, you know, kind of coffee rooms and that sort of thing with integrity and ethical behaviour. And it strikes me that that's a real example of how as a culture of an organisation, all the employees get behind the principle of integrity and, and ethical behaviour as well. Yes, Julian, I'm seeing actually companies now, and I'm talking about probably those more established and, and mature organisations who are moving away from those more bland statements of we operate with honesty, um, we are transparent and brave in our decision making, and actually becoming much more personal and emotive. So I'm seeing things such as we're in it together. Um, here for tomorrow, not just today. So these statements are actually a lot more now about how can we collectively come together to create a more sustainable um, and environment where we all feel that we're having a role and a contribution to play, as opposed to words which we potentially can find hard to relate to. And what's really interesting there, you know, you talk about organisations of a certain size. So I'm imagining in my mind's eye, you know, thousands of, of organise, uh, thousands of employees around the world in multiple locations, etc. And the other dynamic that I'm really fascinated by in the world of fintech is, of course, smaller organisations at the earlier stage of that journey of change. And, and Sylvia, when I think about the world of gold, I mean, that is probably the, one of the most traditional asset classes in, in, in many ways as well. Um, when you, as, as a fintech founder and, as a, uh, and also a champion and a mentor, of women entrepreneurs as well. Um, how does uh, how do you think about incorporating diversity and inclusion into your commercial strategy? The foundations of Goldex as a company are based on both diversity and inclusion. Um, starting with inclusion is is very very simple. The the when when I basically the whole journey of Goldex started because I personally started trading gold. And I started seeing things that I didn't like. Um, the way the, because gold is not a regulated market, there is no FCA policing the behavior of the gold providers. And when there is no police, unfortunately, uh, bad things happen. Um, 
it was very clear for me at the very beginning, coming from such a regulated market like equities, where uh, where everything is uh, is basically structured in a way to always protect clients. Um, in gold, there was no such uh, a protection for the customers. So basically, customers who purchase gold, uh, generally speaking, they they get market abuse from the providers. Uh, the providers are always the ones who purchase the gold and then they sell it to their customers. Um, that creates a conflict of interest because the, the provider is mixing their own flow with that of their customers. So they have, you can call it that they have insider dealing information. And that's when the customer, being totally unaware, uh, is actually, you know, abused on prices. Now, I thought that there was a perfect opportunity to change that. And that's why the way the whole business was created was to say, okay, what about if we become the Airbnbs of gold or the Ubers of gold, where ultimately Uber doesn't own any taxes. Uh, Airbnb does not own any flats. What they do is they have set up a marketplace, a technology system to allow customers uh, uh, you know, get in contact and, and, and get a taxi or, or get, an, uh, get a flat. So that is the ethos of Goldex. Goldex, basically, the whole ethos was, I want to make sure that we do not abuse our clients. We want to make sure that we will never own one gram of gold and that all the orders will be given to a peer-to-peer market where the price will be dictated by people like me or you or uh, Tracy. So the entire foundation of the business is about being ethical, being an ethical provider um, and just offering a very good trading experience and trading you know, systems for our clients. And presumably that, that lot, the technology comes into play quite heavily with that in terms of setting up, as you say, the marketplace, a platform, essentially. And, and when, you, when you sort of set up the organisation, thinking about the talent uh, that you need to have around you to make that successful... Um, they're not necessarily the the institutional gold traders' uh, personality types. They're actually the, kind of the younger data scientists, etc. I don't want I don't want to make an assumption that they're younger necessarily because what we're finding is that there's retraining at every level of the career journey. Um, can you shine some light on uh, how do you find that talent? I think talent is very difficult to find. Good talent, um, however, we are in London, and you know London is probably the best place at the moment uh, to recruit. Uh, to recruit a, a fintech uh, specialist. Interesting, um, I think it was last week, somebody said to me, and I cannot even, I cannot remember who said this to me, but and I keep trying to remember, but I can't remember who's, uh, who told me this, but somebody who was apparently, if I remember correctly, um, adequate uh, to, to, to say this, said to me, I know that female founders have a lot of problem recruiting people. And I said, really? And she said, yes, they do, because there are, uh, apparently there are still men who are not happy to work for females. And I was quite surprised. And I said, look, personally, I've never had that issue. I have asked uh, a few, uh, well, probably I would say about a dozen of female founders uh, in fintech uh, companies about whether they have had issues recruiting uh, uh, employees. And they've, interestingly enough, they all said no. Well, they said we do have issues like everybody else, uh, but they don't. Uh, they didn't say that they they were having problems. So um, I don't know if it's a myth or not. Personally, I think that hiring talent is difficult. However, 
um, what uh, the way I look at hiring is is very very simplistic, and I think it's is is normal to do it, despite the fact that I know that it's not what everybody does. Uh, we when we look for uh, to fill a position, we interview people. If it's a woman, if it's a gay man, if it's a black uh, man or a black lady or a Chinese woman, uh, we don't care. All we care about is how they fit with the values of the company, which is the first and most important thing. Then their uh, professional skills to fill that uh, vacancy. And if they, we think that they are the best for the job, we will offer uh, them the job. I think the main problem comes when in certain organizations, um, first, they already have an idea in, the, in their head about the type of individual they want to hire. Uh, and that, I think, is, is already wrong uh, because that's discrimination already. And then what is even worse is that if a company finds, let's say, a woman uh, who could be an amazing uh, developer, for example, uh, and then despite the fact that she's the most adequate to fill that job, they don't give it to her. That is just because she is a woman. Uh, that is where I think uh, discrimination really kicks in. And um, in, in our heads, we, we are a small organization. However, we have Spanish, English, French, Argentinians, Indians. Um, we are all sorts of uh, different cultural mixes, which I think is very, very uh, you know, uh, it's very good for the organization because it creates different uh, uh, perspectives from different communities. And, and as you look sort of beyond your, your business into relationships with suppliers and partners, strategic partners, do you, do you look to them to demonstrate to you that they have uh, similar sort of attitudes towards skills, talent, diversity? Uh, how, how do you engage with them? And are people such as VCs looking to you and going, well, we want to understand your diversity mix as well? Well, to be honest with you, I, I don't have an agenda to to analyze my providers' uh, diversity and, and inclusion uh, policies, which maybe I should change. I'm not saying that I'm not doing it uh, wrong, but I we I definitely don't do this. What I choose providers because I think they are the best at at what they do, or they feel uh, the needs that we have, uh, you know, uh, the better. Uh, but all I can say, um, however, uh, regarding this, is that. Again, we don't discriminate uh, in, you know, based on the fact of where they are based. We have providers from all over the world. We have providers from India, from Spain, from Italy, from the US, uh, from the UK, of course. Um, and again, it's this cultural mix that we find uh, interesting to, to work with. In regards to the investors, uh, I must admit that only one investor uh, of our row of investors have ever asked me about our uh, our policies and it was an interesting uh, uh, talk he said look I was very interested about your company I was very interested about investing however what really uh, made me invest is that at the very end of your presentation you talk about social good and that social good um, definitely was the, the the last bit for me to to invest in your company so um, you know unfortunately not many people ask for it mm -hmm. but uh, but you know, it's something that we definitely, we promote the social good. And, and it's interesting when it comes back to this whole point about, you know, kind of ethics and social good, we're more and more hearing that investors, the VC community are paying more attention, but there's certainly a lot more attention to be paid to it. And, and that some firms are using it slightly as a competitive edge, actually, which, which I think is a fascinating dynamic when, um, 
you know, there's clearly an appetite for change, but some people are making, and this is the whole point about the podcast, to talk about the commercial benefit of, of being able to, uh, to be able to do that. Um, I'm fascinated by, uh, I mean, I touched on it around the, the type of data scientists and technologists that we need in business today. And I'm really fascinated about sort of the impact of um, artificial intelligence. And I know that there are, there are a lot of concerns and there's more and more coverage and, and, and discussion about um, some of those inherent biases that might exist in, in AI. Tracy, I know there's something you, you think about um, a lot. Um, do you, uh, does that, that concern you? Do, are people worried about it? Should pe- people be more worried about it? Um, I, I'm a genuinely optimistic person, so I don't want to sound worried, but I am, <laughs> which is um, we talk about values being hardwired into intelligent systems and artificial intelligence um, as these new emerging technologies uh, arrive. But we can't actually apply these values on a human level, never mind within systems. So for me, the opportunity for um, us to think long and hard about these aren't AIs or intelligent systems that are biased. It's us. Um, and the machines are learning it from us. Um, and I think the sooner we start to uh, get our heads around effectively that it's not about ch- the ethical system itself being something that we can program. It's more about what are we doing and holding ourselves to account in terms of how we design, develop, implement, and then most importantly measure, and maybe this is the auditor coming out of me from my previous uh, uh, profession, measure and assess that the outcomes from the AI is in line with its intention and its purpose. And that for me, which is the worrying bit, because there are so many opportunities for AI to bring about a richness in our lives that we don't even yet even are aware of. Um, And we're already seeing it on a day-to-day level whether or not we're conscious of it. But if we're not careful, it could actually abuse us and rob us of power as opposed to give us more power in our ability to not only enrich us from a social and economic perspective, but also from an ecological perspective as well. For large firms that are trying to go through that transition and that transformation, the digital journey, if you like, um, are they paying attention to some of those inherent biases? Because I wonder from a an early stage business, you, you were saying, Sylvia, that you set up the organisation based upon fundamental principles. You know, avoiding the conflicts of interest, understanding, you know, kind of the market abuse takes place. So it needs to be a very clean model. I'm just interested in, in both of you. And really, it's an open conversation about as new technologies come through, how do you ensure that uh, that some of those biases are removed over, over time? Is, is that something you think about as well, Sylvia? Yes, we do. Um, what, what is quite, again, like Tracy, I'm going to sound negative, but... Um, if you think about it, there are not, and I'm referring to women here, there are not many women who take investment decisions at home. So it's usually the man who will say, darling, I'm buying some bonds. So I'm buying, I mean, she's lucky if she's even told. Um, but uh, generally speaking, men are the ones driving the investment decisions and what to do with the cash that they have. And I still don't understand why why they don't take more control of this. You know, it's a little bit like the division of the, uh, of, you know, you do you do the repairing of the, uh, you know, DIY at home and I do the dishes, you know. So, so I think um, it's important that women start taking more control uh, in certain aspects, such as the, the investment decisions. Um, from our perspective, one thing that we've done from the very beginning is, for example, to do, uh, in our marketing campaigns, 
uh, to include women. Uh, we want to, you know, we are actually have a few posts about diversification and we play with the word diversification, not just as diversification in investments, but diversification for female. And there is a picture of a, uh, of a woman actually trading or, or, or using it an iPad. So, um, of course, our target as a company, you know, we need to focus on, on the characteristic investor who is, you know, our target audience. But nevertheless, we are trying everything we can to also include women in into taking control of investment decisions. I mean, I'm definitely seeing a lot more activity now to get more women involved in the, the, you know, the more technology and engineering subjects, whether that's from university onwards, but also in internships and university sponsorships as well with big corporates. But I think it starts earlier than that. I think we need to start educating our children. And I think it now needs to be part of our national curriculum that we are highlighting the ethical principles upon which AI and technology needs to be based because the children of today are growing up with it. They don't know how not to to trust a machine. For them, that intelligent system will be the one that they will trust because they don't know any other difference. So their ability to ask questions, to be curious, to apply judgment is going to be significantly curtailed unless they are brought up to understand and have that confidence to have a line of inquiry, which will mean... Was that meant to be what it was set out to be? Has it given us the right outcome? Is it in line with what it stands for? And if not, what are the consequences of that? Who's going to be held to account if that decision was the wrong one? And that, for me, is the concern around diversity in terms of the systems. I think what's hopeful is that the government is doing a huge amount to raise the awareness of this. And I know the, the new Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation, which is being set up by the UK government, is going to be a significant role player in acting as a catalyst and setting standards for what good looks like, because there is no regulation. Um, there is an, uh, an uneven playing field, shall we say, at the very least when it comes to ethics and the way that these machines are being developed. But it's not too late if we just take action now. It will be too late if we take action tomorrow. Great. And I think that's a perfect moment to just take a pause there and turn to Robert and Cynthia, who have been doing some research to support today's discussion. We are pretty familiar with the gender pay gap in financial services. But what about the less well-known gender investment gap? Research carried out in the US by Boston Consulting Group found that when pitching for early stage capital, female business owners secured significantly less money than male business owners. In fact, on average, the disparity was more than a million dollars. However, the same study showed that businesses founded by women ultimately delivered higher revenue, more than twice as much per dollar invested than those founded by men, making women-owned companies better investments for financial backers. Artificial intelligence, or AI, is currently being described as the new diversity. Reshaping business with artificial intelligence, the 2017 MIT Sloan Management Review shows that 85% of executives surveyed believe that AI will give their companies a competitive advantage, and 60% said that an AI strategy is urgent for their organisations. Executives will need to take the time and energy to research how best to forge partnerships between humans and AI. Thanks, Cynthia and Robert. And links to the research can be found on our website, www.diversitypodcast.com. And don't forget that's diversity with a C, not an S, where you can find all our episodes and sign up for early notifications for future recordings. Please do follow us on Twitter at DiversityPod. And Diversity Podcast is available on Bright Talk and all good podcast channels. And we'd love a rating. It all helps to promote the show. So I think there's some interesting questions, Tracy, as I come back on this, this sort of this thought process around 
AI. And I guess there's the central question about, you know, who do you trust? Yes, and in order to be trusted, I need to be trustworthy. So and the same applies both to leadership and it applies to AI and intelligence systems as well. And that requires on- honesty, it requires competence, but it also requires reliability. And that's my wish, that we create an ecosystem whereby both machines and humans come together and collaborate in order to achieve the best outcome. And this really matters because when we think about reaching out to, and, and it came up in conversation earlier, about you know, engaged investors, essentially, and reaching out to those who aren't already engaged as investors. Uh, Silva, I know there's something you, that you think a lot about. Yes, it was very important for us to make sure that uh, everybody could be a client of Goldex, that everybody uh, should be allowed to uh, use gold as a protection of uh, their wealth. For that reason, we decided not to put a minimum investment uh, to uh, our clients so that they can start investing from £10. And uh, this way, we make sure that people's conception that you have to be a millionaire to buy gold uh, is something that uh, we want to make sure that disappears from people's uh, heads. Um, Our service is basically to be uh, open to all and not just the very selected uh, few. Fabulous. Well, I think it's been a fascinating discussion around this central question around ethics, integrity, and at the very heart of business models to ensure that it's available for all. Thinking about the impact of AI and technology and what that means today and also tomorrow. Sylvia and Tracy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank Thank you you very much. This episode of Diversity Podcast was produced by me, Kieran Yates, on behalf of Julia Streets Productions. Thanks to Cynthia Akinsanya and Roet Pinto-Fernandez for their insights. You can find out more about guests on this week's show on our website, diversitypodcast.com, and that's diversity with a C, not an S. Whilst you're there, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all our latest updates. To be sure of catching all our future podcasts, subscribe to our feed in iTunes or your favourite podcast app. And if you've enjoyed this episode of Diversity Podcast, remember to give us a rating or review. It all helps promote the show to a wider audience. Finally, our Twitter handle is at DiversityPod. Thanks for listening.